Your Tauntaun will freeze before you reach the first marker. Then I'll see you in hell. Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of A Galaxy Far, Far Away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Ray Hassett, who played Lieutenant Tigran Dramiro on Echo Base in The Empire Strikes Back. Truly one of the more unique interviews we've had on this show, we delve into his early improvisational work paired with John Ratzenberger, becoming a fire eater on the streets of London, and the work that he does now that ties all of his skills together. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 101, Ray Hassett. Before even Star Wars and Superman and what you're doing now, what made you want to be an actor, a performer, a comedian all the way back then? What were your early inspirations? I think I I, I got interested in college and um, I, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I took a theater course at random and I never looked back. I, I was an English literature major. I loved to read. Uh, I found that theater was kind of a the next step of an avid reader. And then I got into um, improvisational theater, which I loved. And uh, ironically enough, John Ratzenberger, who was also, uh, we started together in, uh, in college. Right. We started in, improvising. We had our own improvisational theater company. And it, uh, it really took off. Sal, it's Sal's Meat Market Theater Troupe, Correct. 1973. What what did that take you? What journey, you know, performing for audiences, learning who you were as a performer, what were you kind of experiencing, especially with someone like John Ratzenberger, who, of course, is also a very talented actor and comedian? I think you learn trust, first of all. Improvisation, um, you have to think very quickly. You put yourself in the in your partner's hands. It, it, it's almost brain science. You work so quickly. And John and I clicked together. Yeah. You know, grew up in the same city, Bridgeport, Connecticut, kind of a hard scrabble city. Uh, we were na- natural fit together. Uh, we were naturally funny. I was more the ruminative guy. Ruminative guy. John was more the, mm-hmm. the foil. It was just a standard comedic relationship, which gelled. And it was cool stuff. How did you make that jump then? from improv and performing on stage to then some of your earlier film roles, right? And I know, was that all in England or how did that kind of work? I left Bridgeport uh, shortly after graduation and I wanted to travel. So I, mm-hmm. I land, first place I landed was uh, London. Uh, I think I knew one person and uh, I just found that there was a big theater. Uh, it was a fringe theater uh, population there, like off off Broadway. I slotted right in there. I did not start as a stage actor. I started as a street performer. So um, I, I went to clown school. Uh, I became wow. a fire eater. I was a juggler. So I started working street, the street. There's nothing more competitive than working the street because right. you got to win people because people are busy. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's not that great. But, you know, I had this, uh, my, my, I had this character, the great Raimondo, which I was a fire eater. And uh, I performed in Speaker's Corner. I opened shopping centers. And I started to get a feel, uh, the same type of chemistry that improvisation has, but working the crowd. 
So, you know, it's finding the heart of the crowd. Uh, you know, you, you can't be sloppy. You can't be weak. You can't be scared. So I started building confidence. Uh, and uh, then I, I, I gave a bell to John and said, hey, listen, there's a vibrant community here, a theater community. Why don't you come over? And John was I think, up in uh, Vermont making chairs or something. And mm -hmm. so we said, yeah, I'll, I'll join you. So we, we reformed Sal's Meat Market in London, England. How did that then lead to moving from stage to screen? What were your first roles or auditions? Or was that kind of something you guys decided together to start maybe auditioning and trying to grow your audience even beyond um, the streets and the stage? No, I think what happened was that Sal's Meat Market, two of us, we clicked in London. Uh, we were a couple of American comedians uh, in a different culture. We, we kind of had a blend of American humor, but we kind of at the same time we absorbed the Monty Python-esque sense of humor there. So we were a hybrid, but we got very popular. So we ended up traveling all over Europe as a, as a, as a, a comedy troupe. Because there were only two of us, we had to make the show a little bit longer. So we started ending up playing 20 different people. One of the, one of the first unique pieces that we, that we really uh, got a lot of success with is I played a crowd of 30 people. And John at a, at a nuclear power plant where the, the, that it had a uh, meltdown. So playing thirty people, if you think about it, you got to be quick, <laughs> you got to be funny, you got to be economical, and you got to know when to say when. But our sense of timing and all, it, as we moved along, got better and better and better. And then we got noticed by some legitimate theater people. We already had the 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 classic blocking classical actor skills. So we kind of slid in through the back door and we ended up doing uh, one of the most memorable plays we did was the world premiere of uh, a, a Sam Shepard play called Curse of the Starving Class, which was a lovely, lovely play. And we were in, in the West End of London <laughs> from, from eating fire and, and juggling to right. West. It was, it was wonderful. And then, of course, your early film roles, I mean, because I guess was that all kind of within the same Shepperton Elstree system. Of course, Superman kind of sticks out to me, obviously Star Wars. How did you first get involved with those projects and how did you kind of balance that with the plays and the stage that you were you were doing as well? well? I think it's a natural progression. You know, once we got representation, we started to become legit. Yeah. So, uh, you know, at that time, there were a lot of major films being made in, in London, you know, more economical. So, you know, they didn't have to bring somebody from Hollywood to London. Mm -hmm. We were there. So we got in on the on the ground floor on that. I had never done a feature film before, but I, we learned quick. And then you build like, you know, you build one on top <laughs> of the other. Right. And the momentum started to grow. And here's the Jedi mind trick here. Once you're on these sets, both John and I were very resourceful. So we will, we were always, or at least I was, when they were looking for something to do something extra, I'll do it. Uh, we need somebody to be set on fire. I'll do it. Mm. So we, we were flexible. And for example, the, the spy who loved me, I think right. I must have played 10 different characters in there. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> right? But you know, it's, it's you're right. eating, you're, you know, you're, you're getting free lunch. And, you know, it takes about a year for the film to be processed and released. So you right. never know. You got to keep eating. You got to keep hustling. So it was uh, it was a quite yeah, a journey. Really? 
I mean, of course, then both of y'all ended up in The Empire Strikes Back, both in Echo Base. And I'd be very interested to hear how you even just got involved with that project. Was it through a casting agent? Was it just kind of open call? What was kind of the process? And then what was your role initially? I think my agent at that time got me the audition. You know, John and I went separately. Obviously, he had different representation. And you would go and audition for a part. And they would either say yes, or they would say, nah, you know what? Let's try something else. Uh, but it kind of all goes back to the street where you, you go into a situation where you don't know, but you put yourself in a place where you get people get a good sense of who you are. And so then they, they plug us into these yeah. roles. And of, of course, the, the role that we're referring to has a name now, which <laughs> I'm sure was not a name on the set. The name is Big Ron, Big Ron Jamiro. Jamiro. And here's my here's my play. Oh, I love right it. Here. He's on the card. <laughs> That's great. And what an, what an iconic scene. I was saying it before we started, like the, the interaction that you have, right? The Your Tauntaun will freeze before the first marker, and then I'll see you in hell. Incre- incredible, right? Like just really sets the tone for Empire. What in terms of, A, having that kind of scene partner, but then also interacting with everything around you, right? All the creatures and all the effects and it obviously being a, a snow environment and not a snow environment. Um, what did you kind of experience while you were on that set? And what what are your memories from that time, at least? Well, you, you, you have to put it in context. Uh, it was an acting job. Nobody knew that it would become right. iconic. So you, you strive to be professional. Uh, you strive to fit in. You know, you're being watched, basically, for whether they can hire you for more things. So it was just being professional and being... Um, being able to figure stuff out. And, you know, you film is very different than stage. Because film is very incremental, whereas stage is broad. So, you know, you really have to adjust. You know, you're dealing with, with actors who you've never met before. So you got to get it right pretty quickly before the director gets a hold of it. Right. But you've got to put yourself, ironically enough, in that space, that quiet space, which is the center of improvisation, so that you're flexible and ready to go in any direction. Well, and that brings us to then the the next phase of your career, which is just so interesting to me and, and so different than any of the hundred guests that we've had, is then, you know, after your time acting and performing, you then move uh, into law enforcement. And not only that, I was reading a really interesting interview with you because then you move from law enforcement to undercover work especially. And you describe that as being important for you to put on a character again. To it, obviously, much higher stakes than a, a day shooting on Hoth, but still the same mentality. And I'd love to dive a little bit into that journey for you, as well as that mentality that you've carried since your very early days in class. When I, when I was looking to transition for a new career... I had taken acting, I think, in, in the film business uh, as far as I wanted to go. I was in L.A., and uh, I, I was I think the last film I did was Body Double. But I started being cast as police officers for some reason. So they must have seen something. But going back to my original premise, I was a great reader still at that point. And I was looking for a career transfer where I could be in the stories, I wanted to be a character in the stories. I wanted to 
have an impact on changing some of the endings of the stories. And, you know, I, I racked my brain for the right career and the only career that I could come up with was law enforcement. So I, I started applying, um, auditioning, and the first place to hire me was an inner city police department on the, on the East Coast. I went through the academy uh, and um, uh, actually I ended up being the, the class valedictorian. So I did get an Academy Award. There you go. Look at that. It was, uh, but it was in a police academy. <laughs> and then I hit the streets. And I can't tell you what an impactful moment that was when I went from the stage to real life. Mm. The incredible, incredible violence at that time and trauma and tragedy and drama uh, in the inner city at that time, which was 1987. Uh, and I was a patrol officer and um, I hit the streets and I was never turning back. And then from there, especially, uh, you, you I'm, I'm very interested in, in now your, your current work, which is taking your experiences in improv, in acting, in the police force, and now applying it to de-escalation and using improv, especially as a base for that. And I thought that was very interesting I'd love to delve into that a little bit. What what prompted you to kind of go into that? What have you, again, taken from all your experiences, whether it was on set or on the force or undercover, and now hopefully trying to better the the surrounding communities and, and teach other people how to use these skills appropriately? I had a wonderful career. I retired at a as at the rank of lieutenant. I ran one of the busiest districts in my in my city, uh, and and I ran it for my car. So I was a different wow. type of supervisor. I was a boss who was out in front of my people and also behind my people every day. So the, the metaphor of a street performer in a way repeated itself, but it was slightly shifted a little bit. Where, the, where it becomes artful is you're connecting with people. Instead of connecting with your partner to make comedy, you're connecting with people to make a connection. So, you, you know, you, you learn a lot about who you are in this, in this atmosphere because you can't make mistakes. Mm -hmm. But you're in so many, going back to my metaphor, I was in so many different stories that daily that, again, you learn to be fluid. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to be friendly. Sometimes you have to be mean. Sometimes you have to be in between. Sometimes you have to be incredibly compassionate. Sometimes it just you can't get stuff out of your head because there's so much going on every day. So it was it was a different sense that I was that I was developing. But I, I think that I started to build my my library of, of empathy with people. Now you move to about two years into my career. Somebody apparently had heard that I'd been an actor. <laughs> So they offered me this position to leave law enforcement and to go undercover, uh, to work undercover uh, under a different identity, deep cover in organized crime. So long story short, I took it and I became someone else. And I became someone else um, who I started out as a, as a pretty affable character with this particular group of people. Uh, and I darkened my character over two years. Mm. So over the over the over two years daily, hanging out with people, uh, you you really you can't afford to make mistakes. 
So uh, I did that for two years and uh, quite an adventure. You work by yourself. You family never knows where you are. Right. Uh, if something bad happens, nobody's coming. You've got to figure it out. Yeah. So it is, um, uh, in a way, it's it's a life improv. Right. Just like you're, you're out there on stage working for that comedic moment. You're trying, you're trying to stay alive. So, you know, I came out of that. And now you're figuring, wow, I've been somebody else for two years. Now, who am I now? Right. So big moral and psychological inventory. A lot of PTSD, a lot yeah. of just like stuff you got to figure out. Um, so I started learning, you know, maybe I can't do this by myself. Maybe I need to reach out for professional help, et cetera, which I, of course I did. Yeah. But in terms of being able to pass that on to people, especially in a population like policing, where, where our police suicides are up, where we have a lot of post-traumatic stress, with cumulative stress, to model somebody who's been to hell and back, I found myself being able, people listening to me as far as when they were starting to head down the road, the, the wrong road to basically ask for help. It was okay to ask for help. Yeah. You know, better to wear out than rust out. So I got into I got into the the um, psychological side of policing. I got into the the mental health side of policing. Uh, I train a lot of police now, and I've trained over three thousand cops. I think in understanding people with mental illness, people with different disorders, autism, etc., which is once again all about connecting. It's all about. It's not about you when you're trying to establish connection, you make it all about the other person. Yeah. It's kind of the basis of improvisation. Yeah. But this time for really noble purposes. Right. Um, and then that's led to um, my de-escalation training. I, I, I ended up actually running my hostage negotiation unit. We're dealing with people at their worst moments. I also helped design and I train overseas now uh, a, a course in behavioral observation, which is predicting uh, terrorist behavior through looking at body language. Once again, that's improvisational. Like, what are you reading off the person? Uh, and being low enough so you're not you're not putting yourself in the mix. You're getting an independent read of someone. All comes back down to empathy and connection. Um, I've been deployed to 14 different countries from the Middle East to South America, training police and in, in, uh, in, in some military in how to detect, detect terrorist behavior. Uh, so, I, you know, I've constantly recycled my skills. Mm -hmm. And it's, and, you know, every day is new. Yeah. It's cool. Very cool. It's such a, an incredible example of being able to take your skill sets and applying it over and over again in different ways and really inspirational. Moving a little bit, in terms of personal connection, we were talking before we went live, your relatively recent appearance onto the Star Wars convention scene and getting to actually like meet fans and like kind of experience this whole new world as well. And I'd be interested, you know, you're talking so much about connection, you're talking so much about the, the lives that you've had. I'd be interested to hear how your connections have been meeting these fans, right? And, and that's a whole different side of everything, right? And kind of learning 40 years after the fact, 30 years after the fact that your work was iconic and did mean something to somebody and is is still preserving in, in a different sense. Well, I think to that point, 
it, it, it mirrors again where the training is. We make it all about the other person. When these folks come to these conventions, they're coming because these films meant something to them. They're life markers. I mean, I'm, I'm impressed. People come with scrapbooks. They've designed their basements, like the film set. They've named their children after, after the characters. Although I've never met somebody with a son named Yoda. I'm sure there's one out there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the tremendous warmth that people have. And I give it right back. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a giver and I'm a hugger. And I just, I'm so honored that, that people, uh, uh, it's meant so much to them. And it, what's also interested mirroring my international travel, some countries are, are just rabid fans of certain films. Like a lot of Germans love the spy who loved me for some mm-hmm. reason. You know, and it's fun to listen to them yeah. and stuff like that. That's incredible. Very inspiring. I know your website is a great way for people to read even more about the work that you're doing. Um, how can people contact you and hear more about what you're doing? And if people are trying to employ this in their own work or whatever, how can they contact you in the future? Ray Hassett, great, www.rayhassett.com. They can reach me there. A lot of new stuff going on. You know, talk about talk about unusual places. So I've just started training uh, the entire staff of a hospice facility in the art of de-escalation and connection. Wow. And you would think, Again, I, I, you would think hospice, quiet place, and it is for the person who's who's basically being cared for. But you bring in that family piece, people who have not got, haven't seen each other for ten years, who's getting written out of the will. Tremendous, a lot of drama and emotion there. And so, training the public on how to help other people to to kind of slow down their heart rate and 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 reset. Is is my mission real? I want to train everybody, right. not just military. I want to train every the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. I mean, on that note, I appreciate you taking the time and and talking through all of this with me, and talking a little bit about your career and, and a movie that means a lot to me and means so much to other people. And uh, Mr. Hassett, thank you, thank you for your time. It was my honor, my pleasure, and may the force be with you. Mr. Hassett, thank you so much for your time and your stories. As mentioned, you can visit rayhassett.com for more information. Thank you also to Derek Mackey and Cool Waters Productions, both friends of the show, who made this interview possible. If you want to meet Mr. Hassett at an upcoming show or purchase any autograph right now, head to the Cool Waters store, which is linked in the show notes for your reference. We have quite a few more exciting interviews and episodes to come, so until then, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the force be with you.